Maria Bartiromo had quite a week last week. It was, to hear her tell it, all great. The Fox Business News anchor landed an interview with the sitting president, an interview that made news for his replies on the Supreme Court seat vacancy and Roe v. Wade, as well as questions on immigration and the tax plan. Ratings-wise, Fox Business has now beaten CNBC in total viewers for seven consecutive quarters. And for the first time, Bartiromo's Mornings with Maria beat CNBC's marquee morning show Squawk Box for total viewers as well. However, to hear others tell it, Bartiromo's performance with the president was less than stellar. The interview was dismissed as toothless by NBC News. CNN's Brian Stelter said she sounded more like a counselor than an interrogator, letting several outlandish claims slide unchallenged. AdH had the opportunity to sit down with Bartiromo to record a podcast before her interview with Trump, which made news in its own right. I'm Brian Breaker, editor of AdH, and you are listening to AdLib. Here, she discusses her evolution from CNBC pioneer to a more ideological Fox Business News headliner. We discuss her Money Honey nickname and industry sexism, the future of cable news, the demographics of her audience, and in a follow-up exchange that you can read online, what she made of the criticisms to that Trump interview. Let's give a listen. Maria Bartiromo, welcome to... Adlib, thanks for joining us today. Yeah, thank you for having me. We're, we're here at uh, Fox Headquarters, 1211 Avenue Americas. We're a traveling roadshow today, so thanks for walking, welcoming us into your space. Um, how are things going? What time uh, did you get up this morning? 3.30. Is that I get up at 3.30 every day. How, uh, how long has that been the case? Well, this program is uh, two years old. Mornings with Mornings Maria. with Maria. So it's been about yeah two and a half years that I've been getting up at this time. But I've done this shift before. I've yeah. done this shift about three times. And actually, I love my schedule. Yeah. What the, what's the you're on TV seventeen hours a week? Is that right? Did I, I add am. that up correctly? That's right. Because uh, I'm on Mornings with Maria three hours every day, Monday through Friday. Yeah. Then I've got uh, Maria Bartiromo's Wall Street, uh-huh. which is our weekend money program, and that uh, is a half an hour. Sometimes it's an hour actually. That's uh-huh. Friday nights at eight p.m. Uh-huh. and then it airs. It repeats throughout the weekend. Then I've got Sunday morning futures over on the Fox News Channel, right. and that's ten to eleven on Sundays. Okay, and you find time to prep in between and travel. You're going to DC. I am. We've got a big program coming up, so yes, I'm headed to DC today. That's great. So, how are things going? How would you characterize it? Last time I was on, I appeared on your show uh, a couple of months ago, um, weeks, um, and uh, it was a delight. What? Um, how would you characterize? You were very bullish on Fox Business News. Let's let's talk about that. How are things going? Things are going great, Brian, and thank you for asking. Um, <laughs> The show is just hitting new records and doing really well, Mornings with Maria. We are seeing the, um, I think I mentioned this, this to you, the audience is the highest income in all of cable. Right. Um, which I guess that means it's all in TV, right. all of television. Um, and the numbers, the two uh, program as far as the highest average income of our viewer is Marie Bartiromo's Wall Street right. in all of cable. Right. And Sunday Morning Futures is on that list as well. So I, I feel really uh, pleased with that. I think uh, obviously our advertisers like that. But our viewers, um, most importantly, are loving the program. We have a great mix of business news, policy, politics, we throw in a couple of uh, um, sort of 
you know, pop culture type things as well. And honestly, we have some of the best guests in business. And so every morning is an incredibly smart, engaging conversation. My colleagues are great. Dagan McDowell is on the program with me every morning. She's wonderful. She's so smart. And she gets there. She's so well read. Uh, so when we get to talking about the issues of the day, policy, business, markets, I've got the people who understand these issues firsthand. So I'm really happy with the program. So let's can we talk a bit about your transition coming to Fox from CNBC? This was in 2014. Is that right? Oh, sure. What was, um, what was the mandate when you came on board? What, were, what was the thing that brought you here? Well, what brought me here was a few things. Um, first of all, I was at CNBC 20 years. Right. And I was noticing that the content um, in my opinion, was getting stale. Um, we were in a new era. We were watching the internet really provide the place for people to find business information. In other words, I don't need to put the TV on and look and know what the Dow is doing. Right, that's okay. commod commoditized info. Correct, yeah. and I'll get it from my phone. Right. But we kept doing that, and I started to feel like, well, you know, I want to see what else possibly could be an opportunity. And then, you know, I saw Roger Ailes and Roger offered me an incredible opportunity to help him build the Fox Business Network with two great shows. One, um, at the time, we, when I first got here, I started off anchoring the opening bell and that was at nine o'clock. So it was nine to 11. And, you know, he, he wanted to build a, a morning program. Eventually, a year later, I took over when Imus left, I took over the morning slot, and we've created Mornings with Maria. And that was a huge opportunity for me because it was broadening right. the content for me. It's a new, right, so it's a new muscle for you. It's a, a, it was a new muscle at the time for you. Um, well, more than that, I mean, the, the content that I was doing, I felt was very near, very short-term oriented. So what's the stock market gonna do tomorrow? Right. What are the earnings gonna be in the next three months? Right. And I was feeling like I, had gotten to know my audience and certainly CEOs, I had a great Rolodex, and I kept hearing from them the same things. We don't care what the market's gonna do tomorrow. We don't care what the earnings are gonna be in the next three months. We wanna be long-term thinkers. And I wanted to create a show that was really long-term thinking to help investors, not just with what the stock market's gonna to do tomorrow, but what about my mortgage? What about my school? What about my kids? And so just do a deep dive into economics for your family. Great. Um, so Let's 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 so th so that was a obvious hole that, that that I guess Roger Ailes identified that was not in the marketplace at the time, right? That's right, and now, and also don't forget he also offered me a, a Sunday morning program on Fox News Channel. So right. it was a big it was a big package. It was a big package. So it was a big big enticement. And um, can we, let's talk about those ratings because you were talking about the audience and 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 the, the high income that's there, but it is still cable news, which is a. a shrinking demographic over the if you look at the arc over time there are fewer and fewer people I think the the top rated show here draws uh, I was looking at Nielsen numbers something like 42,000 adults where does this audience go over time if as they age up age out and ultimately newer digital networks start coming up where do you see the future of cable going yeah, I think this is a great question because this is what we're all dealing with, right? With with this changing dynamic in terms of media. Right. Um, I think, well, first of all, as older viewers 
go out, newer viewers are coming in, I think. And so that's one thing that you, you have to consider. But I think we're moving with our audience. You know, I mean, people want more information online. We're doing it. We've got foxbusiness.com. I'm online all morning. So I just had Alan Greenspan on, and he was making some really... How's he doing? <laughs> he's, he's great. He was making some really interesting comments about the economy right now, because on the one hand, some people feel like we're going to see 5% growth next quarter. Right. On the other hand, some people are predicting a recession right. in two years. While he was talking, I was tweeting, right. and I was sending out posts of what he was saying. So I'm trying to answer what viewers want in terms of TV, online, and anywhere else they are, because I think you make the right point. Cable is changing. The entire in, in environment is changing. Even though right now, I think the most advertising is still dollars, is still in television, yeah. although the growth is online. Yeah, the growth is online. The dollars are there because the dollars are used to being there. It's muscle memory, but over eventually, you know, as people go to the digital platforms and, and migrate away from cable, uh, that's where the advertisers are ultimately going to go. I agree, but let's not forget, people have been predicting the death of TV well, and death. cable yeah. for a long time, yeah. and um, right now, I'm seeing the numbers go up, yeah. not down. Yeah, that's great. Um, what do you make of digital upstart networks, though, that are trying to appeal to more millennial audiences? Like, we've seen Cheddar, obviously, is the one that pops to mind. I've been on Cheddar. I, I think, I, I like to joke that I actually know more people that have appeared on Cheddar than watch it. But I think that it's an interesting product, and I think John is an incredible entrepreneur. Uh, I should get him on this podcast. Uh, but um, do you think that there is a, a need being served there? I love Cheddar. Yeah. I think John's doing a great job. Yeah. Um, he's a friend of mine. I've yeah. been very supportive to him, by the way. I've had him on the program yeah. and yeah. been there for, um, you know, as a friend. Um, and so, yeah, no, I think he's doing great. It's funny to see him broadcasting on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange because that's sort of my hood. Yeah. You know, it's it's what I used to do. And you were the first male or female period person reporter to uh, broadcast from the trade floor. Yes, and it was it's night and day today, Brian. Okay, when I first got down to the stock exchange, it was 5,000 people in five rooms. Right. It's about 100 people, 150 people in, in two rooms. So, but but John is right there and on the floor and doing great, and I think Cheddar is an example of what you're seeing in terms of trying to appeal to younger people and, and you know, answer a hole in the market. So, I'm all for it. I think it's great. I'm not worried that people will say this or that. I think our audience is solid and it's a loyal audience and if they want Fox Business and Mornings with Maria, they can get it on TV, on digital, and and uh, anywhere else. Yeah. Um, can, how do you guys, there's, there's a, something of a gap between 10 to 4, all the trading desks are sort of plugged into Bloomberg terminals and the floors are still playing CNBC. How do you get in there? Well, I don't know about the floor still playing only CNBC because I think it's more of a mixed story, actually. Um, I'm in touch with a lot of Wall Streeters all the time. Um, I have great sources, and they watch Fox Business. But you're right, CNBC is still very prevalent. Um, like I said, I think the trading floor is uh, very changed from when, from when you know, I started down there 25 years ago now. Um, but I, but I think that. Um, Information's coming from everywhere. So you've got CNBC, Fox, you've got Bloomberg, you've got Yahoo, you've got you know all, all sorts of, of, of outlets and people are looking at all of them. I'm not feeling, I don't feel the need anymore and I think I did when I first got here. Oh, we gotta get in there. We gotta make sure that, because, I, because we're there. 
And so I don't feel that urgency anymore, but I definitely did. I think when I first got here, you know, it was work to call up sources and say, look, try us out. Look, we're doing this, check it out. Today, I have a lot of sources who are watching us all the time, and it's just not true that CNBC is the only one on trading floors. It's just not true. Right, great. Um, Can you uh, talk also about, so having, flexing these new muscles with Mornings with Maria and getting, and and broadening the scope beyond just sort of the commoditized marketplace news, um, would you say it's fair that uh, to characterize you as being slightly more political or politicized in your coverage than you were before previously? Well, no, I definitely have stretched myself in terms of educating myself in terms of what's going on today. Mm. And uh, I don't think I had an opportunity to study those things in my in, at CNBC. You know, at CNBC, I was studying the stock market, you know, uh, balance sheets, corporations, and that's what I studied for 20 years. It wasn't important at the time to study policy. Today, it's the number one factor driving markets. So... I certainly do focus on policy and politics as it relates to the impact on the economy. So this week, we're going to Washington to look at the six-month anniversary of the tax reform plan passage, passed six months ago into law, and look what's happened in the last six months. We're talking of 4% economic growth, earnings growth in the first quarter of 26%. Um, um, job, the jobs numbers very strong, unemployment at 3.8%, African unemployment at all-time lows. So you are seeing a reaction to the policy. So from that extent, yes, I'm looking at policy, politics, much more than I ever have. I wouldn't say it's political. I'd say it's more policy-related. Right. Which, which stems from politics or ultimately uh, some sort of... Uh, political engine. Well, most people don't realize how impactful policy is, and I don't know if you've noticed it. I certainly have noticed it. It's like business and markets are focused on what Washington is doing, and I didn't know that initially. Like when I was at CNBC, it wasn't a factor. It's funny, but like we that sounds naive, almost naive. Is that is well? That... But 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 hear me out for a second. I started at CNBC in 1993. And so I was able to have this front row seat in all of these huge developments. So on the first, the first night in the 90s, um, we had 93, we had this uh, empowerment of the individual investor. You had the Schwabs and the TD Ameritrades seeing new competition because everybody wanted to empower the investor so that they could have you know, money to trade on their own. So that was the first phenomenon. Then you had the dot-com boom. And you had, you know, fundamentals out the window where we were looking at how many hits to a website and bidding up these stocks that had little revenue and no earnings, certainly. And then you had globalization where you had one thing happens in the U.S. and it it trickles across the world. There was that phenomenon. Then you had the dot-com bust, you know, at the end of the 90s. Then, then, of course, September 11th. Then, Then you had the global bust and you had this incredible, you know, debt debt storm taking over Europe. Then you had the housing boom where we were buying homes and we didn't even know why we were spending all of this money because we just assumed that housing prices were going to go up until they didn't. And then we had a housing bust. And so you had all of these cycles that were happening that were dictating market performance. You did not hear me say Washington because it wasn't really a factor. I mean, Bill Clinton was running the economy and, you know, it was, it was the economy, stupid, and it was really the, the doorstep of the dot-com revolution. And that's what we were all focused on. So there were so many other things 
yes, of course policy has been dictating where markets go right. forever, right. but I wasn't focused on it. Gotcha. So when I arrived here, I, ha- I was forced to start studying what policies are impactful and how is that going to impact the economy. And now I recognize how important policy is. So I feel personally, I've stretched myself in an incredible way. I've grown incredibly in the last four years because I've become more educated and more informed about policy and how it impacts the economy. Who are you, do you have mentors? Do you have people that, who do you turn to when you, uh, you, were, you were mentioning you were talking to Alan Greenspan, who do you turn to when you're like, I don't understand how this X connects to Y? I have a ton of mentors, and I and I don't have one. I have a lot of people that I will pick up the phone and say, "I don't get this. Can you understand? Can you explain it to me?" I am never afraid of a question sounding stupid. Right. Um, so, you know, I, I admire Jamie Dimon. I, I admire um, a, a number of people in the financial services industry. I admire. You know, Jane Pauley was a mentor for me. Um, Diane Sawyer was a mentor for me. Jack Welch is an incredible mind. I could call him up and ask him, please explain this to me. Um, David Zaslav, Discover. I mean, there are a lot of CEOs who I've become friendly with that I'm not afraid to pick up the phone and say, guess what? I don't get this. Can you explain this to me? And it's really helpful because these can be complicated subjects. And then you have to, and if you are covering that company, though, you have to compartmentalize in some way and say, like, okay, I might be friends with CEO. XYZ, but I have to cover this honestly, right? Does that everybody ever, has does yes. that tension ever uh, crop up? You know, it doesn't. I mean, when I say friends, I'm yeah. not like hanging out with them every night, but right. I've certainly created um, a credibility for myself for sure. where where they want to or have an interest in making sure I get it right. So it's it's less about let's go have dinner and have a friendship right. like that, and more about. Look, here's what I'm doing. You know what I'm up against. Help me understand this so that I can best communicate it. So you mentioned, you, you talked about you rely on people to help you get it right. Do you have a, an instance in recent memory where you didn't get it right? <laughs> um, it took a little while for me to understand all the ins and outs of the tax plan. Uh-huh. Um, you know, whether it would be carried interest, why the corporate rate coming down was so important. I didn't get it wrong, but I certainly needed. Um, I, I needed. There was a learning curve, and 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 then I because for the tax reform package, I'm proud to say that I really had a front row seat, and I had incredible access to the Congress, to the people who wrote the tax bill, uh, to the White House, and to business people who were looking at okay. We're going to see a change in taxes. What do we need to actually get the economy moving again? Um, so in that regard, sure. But I, I can't think of anything that you know I got wrong that I, I needed to correct. No, but I but certainly when I don't when I need studying, that's the first thing I do. I study and the and the way that I study, the first thing is I pick up the call the phone and I call people who understand it, who know the person, who like the person, who don't like the person. I try to get all angles of that person who I'm interviewing so that I can make sure to understand the story completely. And I think I did a lot of that around tax reform. Mm-hmm. I think mean, it's classic reporting. Exactly. Classic, yeah, which is your background originally. Um, can I can I ask you a, a, a potentially touchy question? Um, the the Daily Beast recently ran a story. I don't know if you saw this uh, about you. It said that you um, have made an unmistakable pivot towards uh, occasionally alt right assisted Trump cheerleading. And I can share the article with you if you like to see. No, I've, I, I, I yeah, um, I heard about it. How did what, how did that land with you? Uneventful. I mean, you know, I think that um, obviously this president has created, you know, constant conversation and debate 
about him and about the way he approaches things, I definitely saw the economic policies as important. And I wanted to understand them better. I learned about what the tax plan did and what the rolling back of regulations did. I wrote an op-ed about it last year at the end of the year in the Wall Street Journal. And in that op-ed, I did say that these economic indicators are showing that we are ending the year in a great economic story. And so, yeah, if that's what I'm guilty of by you know supporting or you know agreeing that we needed a, a stimulus, fiscal stimulus. For the longest time, we've been talking about monetary stimulus, the Federal Reserve keeping interest rates at zero levels. We had negative rates for a little while. That was the only stimulus in town. We had no fiscal stimulus. When President Trump came out and, and offered fiscal stimulus in the form of tax cuts and rolling back regulation, I got it. I understood what the market wanted and what the economy wanted. So from that standpoint, absolutely. To what, to what extent is the, I, I get that the tax uh, cut has been a stimulus. To what extent has the healthy healthiness of the economy been uh, a, a reflection of Obama policies? Well, look, under the Obama administration, we were looking at economic growth of under 2% for eight years. 1.8% was, was the average. Now, Obama entered office and was given this incredible upset with the financial crisis, tough, which was the worst of a, in a generation. And right. he had to make some serious d decisions. Should I spend $800 billion on a stimulus package and, and create deficits? Well, at the moment in time, we were lo looking at GE worried that the lights were going to go out. So yeah, he had to. So he entered office with a tough hand, no doubt about it. But then there were the remaining seven years. And what he did in response in terms of that turmoil um, clearly wasn't enough because we ended his presidency with two under 2%, 1.8% economic growth. One of the issues with the Obama administration, I think, as it relates to the economy, is that he didn't like business. So it's like, you didn't build that, you know, it's your fault, you know, all this stuff about sort of putting business on their heels. And as a result, oh, and then there was a, another thing. He had so many regulations. In fact, the Federal Registrar, which is the book of regulations, went all the way up to like 90,000 pages or something, like equivalent of 15 King James Bibles. I mean, that's how business describes it. Because of all of the regulations and because of the weak economic growth and the calling out of business, business didn't know what was around the corner. And I write this in my op-ed at the end of last year. And so as a result, what do you do when you're not sure of the future and you're not sure where the next rule is gonna come? You sit on cash. And so businesses for eight years sat on cash. They were unwilling to, to put it into R&D, unwilling to put it into IT. It's not good or bad, but for the economy, it actually was bad because you need businesses to spend. The beauty of the tax reform package was the drop in the corporate rate from 35% to 21%. And when it goes to 21%, that's a huge deal. So all of a sudden, businesses see free cash flow and they see more movement. And then they became more willing to put money into IT, put money into mergers, buybacks, in, increases in dividends, and that's what got money moving again. And so the probably the most important policy that Trump did when he first came in was roll back regulations, get rid of the red tape. I had Jamie Dimon told me that he went to Detroit and he wanted to invest 
in the in a bridge. Um, no, not Detroit, Staten Island. I'm sorry. He he was going to invest in in the bridge from Staten Island to New Jersey, and they came back to him and they said it's going to take 13 years. He said, Why would I do that? Why would I put money to work to help Staten Island and Detroit? Because he did it in Detroit as well. If it's going to take me 13 years to get a return, that's that's the impact. That's the practical impact. When you have all this red tape. You're going to sit on cash and you're not going to make decisions because you're not going to expect a return for a long time. And that's what happened over under the Obama administration and that's what changed with the Trump administration. So I do believe that these policies, economic policies, did unleash animal spirits and they mm-hmm. did un- and they did unleash business spending, which was really important. Mm-hmm. Uh, can you talk about the, 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 the contentious climate of the both political and social space and how much of that noise affects what you do or how you look at things uh, because it, there's a, there's a lot of there's a lot of noise out there uh, you're <laughs> right yeah uh, how do you navigate that well it, it is what it is I mean like 20, I think it was 20 years ago when I wrote my first book, and it was called Use the News, How to Separate the Noise from the Investment Nuggets and Make Money in Any Economy. And today, that was 20 years ago. Today, the noise is 10 times, maybe 100-fold. And so, look, I try to zero in on what's important and what's going to impact my viewers. So there are some things that are important, and then there are some things that are just you know, water cooler talk. Well, let's talk about what is important because uh, I know I've, uh, my reporters have written about both Fox and MSNBC and CNN. Uh, I've written about them. There's a, you know, whether Fox embraces it or not, there's the the general view of them as leaning more right where others lean more left. Um, What do your viewers expect out of you? is it, was it straight down the road, political, uh, uh, economic reporting, or do you uh, dabble in the sort of more uh, conservative ideology that is attendant with what you know, people view as Fox News? Sometimes I feel like after 30 years in business, I've learned a few things, and um, I put my opinion out there on certain things. I think I did put my opinion out there about the economic policies. I certainly did when I wrote an op-ed. Mm-hmm. And so, you know... I think my well, you've earned the yeah, with thirty years of, of work. You've earned the, the 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 mantle to do that. I feel that way, yeah. and I'm not afraid of it as much. So maybe that's what you're hearing in mm-hmm. terms of detractors. But you know, I think my viewers are expecting. The it's facts. not even detractors. It's just I'm not saying detractors necessarily. I'm just saying to what extent is there. Uh, you are you are already answering. Yeah, so, yeah. I've become more comfortable. Mm-hmm with what I know and what I see because of experience. But that doesn't mean that I am, um, you know, getting away from what my viewers want. I mean, I think my viewers want the facts, they want information, they want to know what I'm hearing, they know that I have access in terms of business and politics at this point. And in some cases, they may want my opinion on certain things. I'm not out there an opinionated person and I'm not a commentator. I am a journalist and I am true to journalism. And that is hearing both sides of every story, making sure to be fair and balanced. But I also think when you look at the media landscape out there, and I don't think I'm reaching with this, most of the media is all the way to the left. Mm-hmm. Am I reaching? I think I think there's, a, there's an overarching 
bias towards the left, yes. Right. So Fox News comes in, and I think when Fox was first created, it was, okay, let's give some balance. Mm -hmm. Let's make sure to put out not just what they're saying, but the other side as well. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what Fox News has done on Fox Business. We try very hard to stick to business and the facts and get real people on the air to talk about what they're up against. And yes, get the CEOs and the, the titans of the world on, but also what are small businesses doing? What are the entrepreneurs doing? One thing about my show, Mornings with Maria, we feature yeah. a lot of entrepreneurs. Diamond and Silk was, was on. <laughs> <laughs> well, they were on. They were on Fox News, and I hosted. Oh, I thought that was. I hosted. Oh, I filled in for Neil Cavuto. Oh, that's what it was. Okay. And um, and they joined me on that. You're right. They joined me on Fox News. Uh, Your World right. with Neil Cavuto, but I had filled in that day, so I had interviewed them. But yeah, so I I, um, I, I think it's a it's a mix. Yeah. Um, can we talk about you when you you, you talked about earlier in your career? Uh, you you. Uh, you have established your credibility as a, as a reporter, as a journalist, as an anchor. You got, when you were starting out, you had this moniker attached to you, the money honey. And can you talk about, especially through the prism now, we're looking at, we're standing on the other side of Harvey Weinstein and the Me Too stuff and all that. Do you, did it at the time make you cringe? Does it make you cringe now? I know that you sort of embraced it. Was that to sort of de-weaponize it or was it just all a lark? No, it, it never, got me crazy yeah. first of all initially I was flattered to just have been noticed mm -hmm. like okay you know that I mean and by the way no one actually picked up the phone and said hi money honey mm -hmm. I mean no you know the media came up with it and mm -hmm. they just wanted two words that rhymed mm -hmm. so that they could refer to me and so but even then I felt fine with it I mean because I always had a confidence that my viewers knew exactly what I was doing and 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 had expectations of me never did I ever feel like the CEO that I was about to go interview was wasn't taking me seriously. Um, I always felt confident in my work and confident that we were on the same playing field in terms of me and the person I was interviewing and, and we were going to. You did have to deal with some crap though. I mean, you wrote about it. Yeah, I did. About it, so. For sure. Yeah. Well, let me tell you something. When you have a major, well, you asked me back then. Right. Now I'll get to today. Because right. you're right, I did write about it today. But, um, you know, when you have a situation where you, you're first mm -hmm. and it's never been done, you do take some hits, and I did. And you know, when I first got down to the floor of the New York Stock Exchange, there was a whole group of people that didn't want me there, right. a lot. And I have one story that I'll share with you. It's a long story, so I don't wanna really so take up too much that. time, but I remember I was on the floor, and I had been there about a month. And it was really amazing that Dick Grasso allowed us on the floor. When I got down to the floor of the exchange, I realized a lot of the people there, because I'm from Brooklyn and my dad, had started a restaurant, the Rex Manor. A lot of named after the boat that your grandfather came. You right? did your homework. Yes, homework. that's exactly right. My uh, my grandfather came back and forth to America. One of the trips he came on the Rex. It was this beautiful ship. He he built the restaurant and he named it the Rex Manor. I was the co check girl, and I noticed that. A lot of people knew the Rex at the New York Stock Exchange. They would go there, they knew at the brick oven pizza, and so I did feel comfortable. But anyway, back to the story. I must have been there about a month, and I felt good about it. I had I had met the, the specialist in GE, this guy George. Um, and this is, of course, the guy who puts the buyers together with the sellers. And so I didn't know a lot of this when I first got to the floor, but he explained he took me under his wing because it was GE, and that was my parent company of CNBC. So one day I learned that my boss's boss was coming down to the floor, Jack Welch. Oh and I thought, what a fantastic opportunity for me. Jack Welch is coming down, and I'm gonna be the one 
to show him the GE post. I'm going to go to George and ask George to explain to him exactly what he explained to me, where the flow is, where the buyer is coming from, what's going on on a daily basis. This will be great. So one day I decide to walk over to the post of GE to tell George Jack is coming and I'd love him to host him and to, I want to show him the post. Well, there must have been about 25, 30 guys right around us in earshot and it wasn't busy, otherwise I would not have walked over. I walked over to George and I said, George, and one of the guys who was a regular in GE stock, literally, Brian, three times my age, he was with his little book and he said, run along, get out of here, this is not your business, this is not going on your little TV show. Mm -hmm. You know how you feel when you have knots in your stomach and you don't know how to react. So I stood there and I looked at him and I said, don't speak to me that way. And then I turned around and I ran along. Mm -hmm. But I came back and I kept coming back. And I said to myself on that day, because I was mortified. Was Jack, Everybody's was watching. Jack Welch with an ear show? No, happened. Jack uh, Welch was, I was just asking George if I could bring oh, Jack tomorrow. Gotcha. So I was. But then you showed up the next day with Jack. So no, the next day, I, no, that night I called Dick Grasso. Yeah. And I said, Dick, this is not right. You agreed that I could be down here. Why am I getting harassed every day by this guy? And he just embarrassed me in front of all of these people. He said, Maria, come up. We're going to have a little sit down with Mike Robbins. What did I learn later? Mike Robbins was on the board of the New York Stock Exchange. Mike Robbins did not want me down there. He doesn't want TV cameras down there. He doesn't want women. He doesn't want anybody bothering him. He's got a big business to do. Sitting there knee to knee with him and Mike Robbins. Me and Mike Robbins in, in Dick's office. And he said, look, don't come around where I am. You'll be fine if, you, if I don't see you. None of my business is for your little TV show. He belittled me in this 20-minute meeting. I just left, and that was that. For the next, literally, I don't even know how many years, but it was years, every time I would pass Mike Robbins, he would have a comment for me. Ha! Save your money! Like, you're never going to amount to anything. You better save your money. It was, it was hard. And the problem was, because he was such a big shot on the board, anybody who spoke to me that he saw, it ruined my cred. And so, you know, he was, like, killing my sources. So it was a problem. And then one day, years later, the market is crashing. It's dot-com sell-off. I used to walk around the building to get away from Mike Robbins. I didn't want to see him because he would embarrass me with a comment every day. So I would go out of my way to get out, out, out of his way. But you did show up every day. Every day. I was on the air every day for multiple hits. Mm -hmm. And at that time, we, didn't, we only had this one camera on the floor shooting me, and the guys didn't know when I was on and when I wasn't on. There weren't all these TVs, so they was bumping into me, and you know, I just went with it. It was fun. I didn't mind. Um, but finally, Mike Robin, the market's crashing. I can't go around the building. I got to be on TV like five minutes ago. I have to go buy him again with his comments. And I turned to him, I said, no, you save your money. And I kept running and I thought, what a great victory, I just got him back. Anyway, long story short, I did bring Jack Welch to George. George did take Jack through everything that I wanted him to. And years later, um, Mike Robbins retired. I was so happy when he left the floor because he really was like a, a thorn in my side. Then a year later after that, I was at a party uh, for Goldman Sachs, uh, Vice Chairman Bob Hormatz, and I was his guest, and it was at this great restaurant, it was all of Wall Street, and I was like, this is great, all my sources are here. Corner of my eye, I see Mike Robbins walking in. And um, I said, let me just get out of here, I don't wanna be in his way. 
He pokes me on, I'm leaving, I'm backpedaling out of the restaurant when I get this, uh, poking me on the back. I said, oh, hello. He said, hello, Maria, it's Mike Robbins. I said, yes, how are you? Just a horrible feeling. He said, look, I wanna shake your hand. I wanna thank you for all that you do. I'm sorry for harassing you over the years. I want you to know, I still haven't seen your little TV show, but I do read your column in, in Business Week and you're doing a very good job. And I said, Mike, all's good. Thank you so much. And so it, it was like such a great feeling for me because I feel like I had satisfaction that it, my work proved to Mike Robbins that I was okay. And that's what I did throughout my time at the Stock Exchange. Worked hard, tried to make sure I knew the story so that nobody had anything on me. Right. Do you, to what extent did feeling the need to avoid him or him being there, did that feed the drive? Or did it discourage? Well, no, I, I, wanted to be, I wanted to be really good. I didn't want him to feel like he had anything on me. So on that day when he humiliated me at the GE Post, I, I made a commitment. I said, I'm not gonna let these guys push me around. I'm from Brooklyn. I don't you know, go away easily. And so I, I went home and I studied. I made sure I knew my stuff. Because then I figured out later that the guys on the floor, they don't really know what's going on behind the scenes. What they know is I have a million share, share order to buy IBM. I have a million share order to sell GE. They don't know why. So I knew the why. So, you know, I realized sort of where they were, where I was, and I felt I realized I could do this. So, but the reason that I brought that whole story up to you is because you mentioned the Me Too moment. And I think in these moments like this, where you actually see progress, I'm so thrilled for women today. They are more empowered than they ever have been. And it's because of this Me Too moment, partly. And I think, unfortunately, when you do have big situations like where there is progress, some people have to take a hit, you know, in order to. You, you know, some people take the hits initially for others who, you know, end up like, look at the floor of the New York Stock Exchange today. You, I was going to ask about that, actually. So when you say some people take the hits, you mean you? I did take hits, frankly. I did because I had, I mean, one guy, Selden, and I wrote about this in that, uh, you know, in that piece. He didn't like something I was reporting on AIG. I was at the AIG post. You know, they have metal machines that they can put orders through right from the floor. They're, they're about five times the size of your iPhone. They're big and they're thick. He shoved it into my back while I was live on air because he didn't like what I was, I had to go to medical at the New York Stock Exchange, take the next few days off because he hurt me, literally, physically. So, I mean, I didn't make a big deal about it. I just went, sucked it up, you know, got better, went back to work. But what I'm saying is oftentimes when you, you have situations where you want to make progress, there are others who actually came before you who took the hits. Barbara Walters took the hits for women in television today. So did Diane Sawyer. Yeah, no, no doubt. Um, so you mentioned the, what, the way the floor looks today. Uh, there are cameras everywhere. There are little booths everywhere. To what extent? And you mentioned that, like back when back when you were starting out, you knew what was going on behind the scenes where other people didn't. To what extent has the sort of Heisenberg principle of the floor altered the floor itself in terms of the way uh, stocks are transact transacted or, or or business gets done? You know, with cameras there all the time, people analyzing all the time. How is it a different world 
today than it was when you were starting out? Well, it's a good question because it has changed night and day, but I just want to make sure that I'm clear on something. Mm-hmm. I didn't feel like I knew everything and others no, didn't. I didn't what I did feel is on the floor of the exchange, it's a very different place than even the trading desk of, ups, they call them the upstairs trading desk, like the JP Morgan trading desk or the Bank of America trading desk. They have the information, they know, but the traders in the pits on the floor, most of the time, they just know the order flow. They're not necessarily understanding what's behind it. Now, today it's very different because there's been an explosion of information. If you have a million share order to sell GE, you're just going to look up what's going on in GE. Back then, those traders didn't. So today it is a little different. Look, as I said, the sheer numbers are, are, are quite dramatic. When I was there, it was 5,000 people in five floor in, in five rooms. They've shut down most of the rooms. Now they've got one big room and then a smaller room. And it's about, it's certainly under, you know, 200 people, I believe. So from just the numbers, and then is that is that due to and forgive me because I'm not a, a, a Wall Street whiz. Um, is that because people have been the the role the jobs of humans have been obviated by machinery? Yes, okay. that's exactly right. People are now putting things through the computer, and even back then they were, but now it's even more so. So you know, if if you're at the uh, you know, it used to be where if you wanted to buy shares of IBM, you're going to call your broker and say, look, I want to buy. 100 shares of IBM, your broker is going to call that guy on the floor of the exchange who's going to go over, physically walk to the IBM post and give it to the guy who's bringing the orders together, the buy and sells. You don't have to do that anymore. Right now, you can put it in a computer and it's going to, sh- it's going to show up right in front of him. So yes, jobs have been displaced by machines. Um, that's just a reality and it's certainly a reality on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange. Also, fees have come way down, so it's a lot cheaper. Um, so the jobs have gone away on Wall Street. Trading has definitely gotten a lot smaller. Mm-hmm. Interesting. What? So looking over the horizon, uh, where do you see? Where do you see what you want to get into next? If there is a, a, I don't know that there is an immediate horizon, but like where 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 are you interested in going? Yeah, I, look, I love what I'm doing. I yeah. I I, I got to tell you, I've. I'm so happy doing the content that I'm doing. It's so interesting, the storyline that we're following every day from you know the, the media mergers, for example. You know, you've got AT&T, Time Warner, you've got Fox Entertainment and Disney, and then Comcast trying to break it up. That alone is an incredible story. Where do you see that going? Well, that's also going to trigger a whole host of other mergers. Right. So I think where it's going is consumers are dictating the way they consume media and that's you know that's dictating how companies change so i think it's going to continue i think you're going to see a lot of media mergers this year because all of a sudden once again we're talking about content being king and you know netflix paying eight billion dollars for original content has everybody else in a flutter trying to figure out what they're going to do you should do, so a, you should do a show on netflix so that's that's one major change yeah. and i also think so so i was saying you know content you got that in business you got a stock market that is just you know near record highs money moving once again into technology then you've got policy tax reform you know rollback in regulations and the impact on the economy it's it's fascinating and so i really i'm having the most fun i've ever had in my career yeah even more fun than when uh, Joey Ramone was writing songs about you. Well, now you're getting crazy. I mean, I didn't say that. No, Joey Ramone wrote a song about me, and I'm so happy. I love him so much. Did you get I, to meet him? I did, but 
I didn't go down to the floor when he asked me to. So what happened was he used to call me. And he, he used to email me all the time. He used to be an investor, right? He was such an avid investor. People don't realize that about him. Not very but punk he, rock. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> he, would, he would send me emails. What do you think about Intel? What do you think about this? And I would just answer because I was always answering viewers. I always answered viewers. And I didn't know it was the Joey Ramon. Right. So finally, he calls me. And he said, Maria, I want um, you to know that I wrote a song about you. And I said, what? This is that Joey Ramone. I've been talking to you online. I didn't realize it was you. And he said, "Oh yeah." I'm. So, he's like, "Oh, you've been so great." I'm, so then we met, and he said to me, "Will you?" At that meeting, he said, "Will you come down to the floor of the New York?" I said, "Oh, will you please come on my show and sing on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange?" And Dick Grasso approved it. We were going to do a whole show from there. And he said, "Absolutely." He said, "But first, you have to come down this weekend to CBGBs and watch me what uh, sing your song." And you know, at that time, again, I was on this shift. I was getting up at three in the morning every day. I had to be on the air live at seven. And he wanted me, he said, we're gonna go up on stage around midnight. And I said, there's no way I can be there downtown in the village at midnight because I'm on the air at seven. He said, oh, okay, I get it. He said, well, you have to send a camera crew down because I'm gonna sing your song. And I said, okay, so I asked my camera crew to go down and shoot it. And when they came back with the tape, of him seeing Maria Bartiromo, I almost dropped. It was so incredible. And then, unfortunately, he got very sick. He couldn't come to the show and sing the song, and then he died. And I'll tell you, from all of that, I've done so much and seen a lot. I will always regret that I didn't pull an all-nighter then and just go to the darn CBGBs to see him sing my song. CBGB's gone now, too. I know. I know. Uh, well, this was great. You and he's a Brooklyn boy. So. He is. You're <laughs> right. And I have, you know, former band members and certainly Stevie Van Zant. I met uh, later, and we became great friends. And so uh, I listen to his radio station a lot, and uh, he talks about Joey Ramone and, and me. And yeah, it's, I have great, great, great memories. Awesome. Well, uh, this was fun. Is there anything you want to add? No, I mean, you know, that that goes down. One of the most exciting um, days of my career. The other <laughs> most exciting day, I think, is when I threw the first pitch at Yankee Stadium. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, it was really we cool. Do, uh, we talk about that in the next podcast. Okay. Thanks, Maria. Thank you so much. I want to thank Maria Bartiromo for inviting us to Fox headquarters to tape that podcast. I want to thank Alfred Mascheroni for producing that podcast. I'm Brian Breaker, editor of AdAge. You have been listening to AdLib. Be sure to check us out at adage.com. Subscribe to us at iTunes. Give us lots of stars. You can hear us at Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, wherever there are good podcasts. And come back next week.